Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Welcome. If I've not met you, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. So thankful that you are here with us today. If you are new with us, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You look in your seat, you'll find a blue connection card, blue postcard. Gives you a, us a couple ways to get in contact with you. Just fill that card out. You go to the back table as you're heading out the back of the sanctuary today. Amy will be at the connection table. Hand that card to her and exchange that for a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery. That's just our thank you uh, for you to be for being here today. You get a nice pastry out of it, so thanks for being here. Uh, and so uh, exchange that with her. We'll also email you this week with a list of charities. Uh, respond to that email and let us know which charity you would like us to make a donation to, and we'll do so as our thank you for you being here this morning. Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. Gospel means good news. At one point, uh, we were separated from God because of our sinful choices and actions. Um, and God made a way for us to be restored to him. He made a way for us to be made right with him through the work of the cross. That he went and paid for our sins uh, once and for all, rose from the dead, so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus can be saved. And so if you've not received Christ this morning as your Savior, I'd love to talk with you after the service about how to do so. Secondly is community. God has called us together as a people from all walks of life and backgrounds and ethnicities and temperaments together as a new people. And he calls the church a family. And so we live this out together as a new community shaped by what Jesus has done for us. And we really do believe as a church, we want to have a culture in our church that's shaped by the gospel of grace and forgiveness and, and, and forbearing with one another and helping each other follow Jesus together. And then lastly is mission. Uh, we declare and demonstrate the good news of Jesus, that our lives have been changed, so we tell others about Christ, and then we also love and serve our neighbors as Jesus has served us. And as Joy Mint, or, uh, sorry, as Jesse mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, we have a team from Emmanuel Church who's here this week. Uh, this is a church in Birmingham. And this church is special to me because this is the church we started in Birmingham. And now, now they believe in the believe in the gospel, believe in the mission of what God is doing in Boston, and sent us here several years ago, and have come and joined us. They've joined us in prayer, they've joined us financially, but also by serving, so that we can see more and more people meet Jesus here in Boston. So if you see some folks right here, kind of in the front left, be sure to say hello to them, thank them. They're some of my favorite people in the world. So be sure to uh, uh, to, to uh, tell them hello. A few announcements before we jump into the text this morning. Uh, first of all, this is Holy Week. We are starting Holy Week today with Palm Sunday. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12 and the triumphal entry of Jesus. This begins Holy Week. And so starting this week, um, this week we will not have community groups. I think our Sunday night group is going to meet tonight, but we, they're not going to meet tonight. Just kidding. Um, to check on that before I say it. Um, no, we're not going to be having any community groups meet this week so that we can focus on Good Friday this Friday night here at the church building. We're going to have all four of our City on the Hill congregations gathered here. Right now we have over 260 people registered for Good Friday. So if you've not registered, be sure to follow that QR code to make sure you have a place. Even if, even if it seems to fill up, we will find a spot for you. So just be sure to register for that. Then coming up on Saturday, we have our Easter egg hunt, and we need volunteers for that. So we have over 250 kids registered for our Easter, Easter egg hunt. So we're really pumped about that. 
It's going to be at Johnson Park. Um, just follow that QR code if you would like to help volunteer. Um, our team here stuffed eggs yesterday. We just get to go watch the locusts descend on the park and get Easter eggs. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And then this coming up Sunday is Easter Sunday. We are going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And, we, and a couple things about Easter. We're excited for it because it is, it is the day we, we remember what Christ has done on the cross and the resurrection. Uh, and a couple things that, to keep in mind that day. We're going to have a photo booth that day. We're going to have somebody taking pictures of your friends and your family. And so be sure to come and bring friends, family, and get a free photo, and we'll send it to you. But also, for every person who visits on Easter Sunday, we're going to make a $10 donation to the Boston Higher Education Resource Center. So you'll find some little blue cards, some little baby blue cards in your seat, some invite cards. I want to encourage you all to try to invite one or two people, bring them with you. And so if we have 100 people show up for Easter, we're going to give 1000 bucks, 150 1500 bucks, so that first-generation college students can get an education and begin to change their families' lives for generations to come. So be sure to be a part of that. I'm going to read from John chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 19, and then I'm going to pray for us before we jump in this morning. Uh, when I'm done reading, I'd ask you to, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and I'd ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. John 12, starting in verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for yourself, Jesus. We thank you that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again. And this morning, as we look at your triumphal entry, you're entering into the city of Jerusalem as king, Lord. We pray that we would focus our eyes upon you as our one good and true king. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I am a parent of four kids, three teenagers and one almost teenager, and one of the things that's a little, a little uh, annoying about it is when they discover music that I know as if they found it first, uh, especially music that I listened to as a kid. And so the other day, I'm like going through the house, and I hear Backstreet Boys playing over the Alexa. And you know, I'm not going to sing it for you. You don't want to hear that. And then I hear Britney Spears playing. I'm like, I'm like are you guys listening to? And they're like, dad, have you never heard this? Like you should, you should let them like, I felt a little bit like Aslan and Lion the Wish in the Wardrobe. I'm like, don't recite the deep magic to me. I was there when this was written. And I feel that way. I'm listening and I'm, they're listening to these lyrics and there's a couple songs. I'm like, you don't know what that means. We should probably not listen to that one. Um, but it's funny how when you listen to song lyrics, sometimes years later, the meaning hits you and you're like, oh, I didn't know what that meant. And I want to play a little congregational game here this morning with some song lyrics. And I've chosen several different uh, genres and, and types of music and time periods. Uh, has anybody ever heard the song Blackbird by the Beatles? Does anybody know what that song is about? Not about drugs. It's a great, that's a really good guess that it's about drugs. That's, you know, about 70% of rock songs. 
It's actually about a black woman in the civil rights movement. Fascinating, uh, fascinating little thing. The song Closing Time by Semisonic, does anybody know what that's about? It's not about a bar closing. Close, it's about birth. Uh, it's about birth. And, so it's, and there's a line in that that every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end, this ending of one season into the next. Uh, the song Royals by Lord, does anybody know what that's about? The, the easy guess would be what, right? Royalty? It's actually about the Kansas City Royals, the baseball team. That was her inspiration for the song. Uh, sometimes we hear words and we don't quite grasp what they mean. We hear words and the meaning of those words don't hit us. And in verse 13, the crowd is crying out to Jesus, but they don't quite get what they're saying. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These are incredible words. They are saying to Jesus, save us. You're the king, but they don't quite understand what they're singing. They don't quite get who Jesus is. They don't quite get the type of king that Jesus came to be. And they didn't realize that Jesus was a far better and far greater king than they could ever imagine. They were living in a world where things were clearly not right. If you know anything about the people of Israel at that time, they were under Roman oppression. They've been under the oppression of other nations for a couple hundred years, and they have been longing and waiting for this day when someone would come, a king would come, and remove them from under this oppressive rule, and they wanted it to end. And it was all kind of built up inside of this person called the Messiah, the king who would come and we all feel a similar tension in our world that the world just isn't right. That we want someone or something to come and make our world right. We looked at what happened in Nashville this past week as a gunman went into a Christian school and shot children. And none of us, no matter what you would believe, would say that's the way the world's supposed to be. We'd say that's evil. We would say we want someone or something to come and undo things and events like that. And we also look at our own hearts and our own lives and we say, man, I just don't think I'm supposed to be this anxious. I don't think I was created to be a person riddled with guilt. I, I don't think I should be this busy. I don't feel like I should feel this shame all the time and we're longing for someone or something to come and make it right. And just like the Israelites, we often miss the type of king that Jesus came to be, and we look for all sorts of solutions to our problems. We look at the problems we see in the world, in our own city, and we look to saviors like politics and policies and better education and more money and reform. We look at our own lives, and we want to enter into programs and therapy and find support and relief, and none of those things are bad on their own. None of those things are, are inherently bad things. Some of those are, are truly helpful, but what they do reveal is that all of us are looking for someone or something to come and make things right. And what they show us is that every single one of us is looking for a kingdom and a king. Every single one of us is looking for a better world and for someone to rule over that world, to put all things in order and to make all things okay. And that's what we see in Jesus. At the triumphal entry, we are looking to Jesus as the king who's bringing the kingdom that we truly need. And to them, this king, the king that they had imagined was one who was going to come and overthrow oppressors and restore their country. They were sort of nationalist in that way. The political power was the kingdom that they had imagined would bring them life. And just like that, you and I look to all sorts of ways that Jesus can be a king that's far less than the king that he came to be. 
Jesus comes to be so much different and so much better. And as, if you're a follower of Jesus, you tend to look at or the reconciliation that Jesus' kingdom brings one of two ways. We tend to look at it either vertically or horizontally. We tend to look at it vertically where it's only about what's personal. It's only about my heart. It's only about my guilt and my shame and my fear. It's only about my forgiveness and about living a moral life, being right with God. Or there's the horizontal piece where it's, we see Jesus as an agent of social change. We see G Jesus as talking about caring for the poor and undoing in, un, injustice and, and inequity. But what we see is that Jesus came to make all things new. He came to make our hearts new. He came to make our city new. He came to make everything in our world new. And so Palm Sunday reveals the type of king that Jesus came to be and the type of king that Jesus is and Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Palm Sunday is about the fact that the king is coming back. He is Jesus. He is the true king. And this kingship will bring blessedness. This is the king who will make all things right. Jesus came to establish a kingdom that makes all things right and blows our expectations away. So this morning, we're going to look at three elements of Jesus and his kingdom. Firstly, what Jesus' kingdom is marked by. Secondly, who Jesus' kingdom is made for. And lastly, where Jesus' kingdom moves us. So firstly, what Jesus' kingdom is marked by. And the first thing we see from the text is what you would expect when you think of a king and of a kingdom. We imagine glory and power. It says in verse 12, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is what you imagine when a king enters into the city. You imagine glory and power and pomp and circumstance. And there's something about Jesus that draws a crowd. There's something about Jesus as he's entering in that everybody leaves what they're doing and they come after him. And what happened just prior to this event is really important for us to understand why everybody is seeking Jesus. If you look back at John chapter 11, we see at the beginning of John chapter 11 that Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead. Jesus was on the way to the city of Bethany. He's going to spend time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his dear friends. And somehow along the way, a message gets to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is dead. And it takes Jesus three days to get over to Bethany. And as everyone is weeping, uh, Mary and Martha are like, why didn't you come sooner? You could have stopped this. Jesus, with tears in his eyes, calls Lazarus out of the grave. And Lazarus comes with his grave clothes on, stumbling out of the grave into new life. He comes out, and this crowd is amazed at the fact that this Jesus, this Messiah, has the ability to call the dead to life. That Jesus can call them to life. But not just that. You look at the beginning of chapter 12, and we see that Jesus is anointed by Mary. Jesus is at dinner. He's hanging out. He's ordered some breadsticks. He's doing a third, you know, they're, you know, Gluten-free, I'm sure, whatever. Like, you know, the, there's no yeast in the red stick. Um, he's, he's hanging out at dinner. He's just eating. He's with his friends. And Mary comes in weeping and anoints the feet of Jesus with enough ointment that would take a year's worth of salary to pay for and is saying, you are worthy. You're the king. And the events of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 were so serious that both Jesus and Lazarus get death, get death threats. They're ready to kill them because of their ability to turn over everything in the world upside down. And we see in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, that Jesus demonstrates his power over death and his worthiness to receive all glory and honor and praise. 
And no wonder the people are reacting this way. And we look at verse 12, we actually see the two crowds have come together. There's the crowd from Bethany that has seen the work of Jesus through raising Lazarus to, to life, but also the crowd is coming from Jerusalem from the Passover. Now, to understand a little bit of context of the Passover, the Passover was the yearly event where the people of Israel rem- were remembering how God took them out of Egypt. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God was delivering them, and the angel of death was coming. He said, you need to paint the blood of a, of a lamb over your doorway, as a, as a, and the angel of death will pass over your home. And for years, they would remember this day. And they would come together every year in this giant event in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate this and make sacrifice for sins. And to give you an idea of how large the crowd would have been in Jerusalem, uh, later in the first century, Josephus, a a Jewish historian, said that at one, there were about 2.7 million people in the city of Jerusalem during the Passover. They, they would come there every single year. This was a big deal. This was marked on the calendar. You knew when Passover was. You were going to have dinner with your family. You were going to do all these things together. You are going to come and make your sacrifice. And so imagine if you're going to leave that to go out to the desert and meet someone, he's probably pretty important. There's something about him that is greater and better. It'd be a little bit like this. The biggest event on the calendar in Boston every year is the Boston Marathon. It's coming up in two weeks. I'm super excited about this. 30,000 people running. I'm not. But 30,000 people running it for some reason or another. Thousands more come to Boston to experience this. They shut streets down. People take off work. We take off today. Now imagine that you get word that some guy out on Route 128 has found a cure for all infectious diseases. Some people are going to go, I'm really curious about this guy. I'm going to leave this really important event, and I'm going to go all the way out there and figure out what this guy's about. That's the equivalent of what's going on here. And they recognize this in verse 13, that he is someone important who's bringing a certain type of victory, where it says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. So they take palm branches, which would have been a symbol of power. Now, what's another thing that we love in Boston? We like winning right? We are the city of champions, and it's been way too long, so come on Celtics, we need you to come through. Uh, We need another championship, we need another banner, and we need another parade. We need need to see some duck boats, we need to see some things going on, because we need to win, because we like to win. This was a victory parade. As they took the palm branches, this is like a ticker tape parade, they're saying, you, Jesus, are the victorious king. You are the king. Colin Cruz says that palm branches were also used as a symbols of victory and kingship. By meeting Jesus with palm branches, the crowd showed they were welcoming him as king. They're saying, you are glorious. You're the king. You're the one. You hold the victory. You can save us. Verse 13, Hosanna. The word Hosanna is just a Jewish word that we don't have a better word for. It literally just means save now. Save us. Help us rescue us. We believe you're the one who can rescue us. You can get us out of all of our troubles. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God has sent you as the king of Israel. The king here is not just a king, he is the king, the Messiah, the one that they'd always been waiting for. And the words here spoken by the people have some significance because if you look at Psalm 118, these are the exact same words that are said And those words were often sung by travelers to the Passover every year. They would sing them back and forth to one another. They would sing, Hosanna, 
the king is coming. And what they're declaring in this moment is the king is here in glory and honor and power. The kingdom of God declares boldly that Jesus is glorious and powerful enough to save. And not that he's king because we declare him to be, but he is king because of who he is. And we recognize him for who he is. Rebecca McLaughlin says that Jesus doesn't need the crowds to validate his kingship. The gravel on the ground is ready to declare it at this point. The one who made the universe has come to claim his kingdom here on earth. And if the people that he made can't see what's happening, the stones will shout it out. So what do you do when you realize that Jesus is not just a king, but he is the king? The first thing we do is we worship. What is worship? Is to reflect back the worth and glory of what we worship. It's to tell God who he is, to tell God how good he is, is to tell Jesus what he has done for us. And so when we worship Jesus, we worship him as the king and we say, you are this good, you are this glorious, you are this worthy, you do hold this much majesty. And the question for us is, do we relate to Jesus based off who he says he is, that he is worthy of this glory? It'd be like look, being at the base of Mount Everest and just going, no, I've seen taller. No, you haven't. It's the tallest in the world. If you don't, if you're not awed by it, something's wrong. We, we reflect back to him that he's the greatest and the best. But the second thing we do is we submit. We worship and then we submit. What that means is that if he is the king, he gets final say. That he gets final say. When God calls us to something, there's no yeah, but. There's no, yeah, God, I'd rather do this than that. What I think matters more, what I believe is, is better is actually what leads to life. What happens when you submit to Jesus is you begin to ask the question, Jesus, what do you want for my future? What do you want me to care about? Who do you want me to love? What do you want me to spend my money on? What, what do you want me to do with my time? See, a God powerful enough to save is worthy enough for us to obey. So we see the, the glory and the power of Jesus, but there's something mind-blowing in verse 14. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now that should make you stop for a second. When you imagine a king entering into a city, what do you imagine him riding on? Not a donkey, a war horse. We imagine the biggest and the best horse he could find, clad with armor and gold and all this stuff. And we, this just seems so out of place. If you, if you keep up with basketball, there's a player named Kawhi Leonard. And Kawhi Leonard is an odd dude, a very odd dude. And Kawhi Leonard makes $40 million a year and drives a 1997 Chevy Tahoe, okay, that he calls the gas guzzler. And he drives this, and the reason he says he drives, drives it is it runs and it's paid for. That's not what you imagine an NBA basketball player showing up to the arena in. You imagine him showing up in like a giant Jeep or a big truck or a Bugatti or a Ferrari or a Porsche. You imagine him showing up in something that shows how wonderful and great he is, showing up in style and grandeur. This is not what you imagine for royalty. We got to see Westminster Abbey a few weeks ago, and it's just like, it, it's overwhelming how much gold and stuff there is in that building and we see Jesus showing up on a donkey. What this shows us is it shows us the gentleness and the humility of Jesus in his kingdom. That Jesus is great and he is powerful and he is all this, these things, but he is also humble and gentle. 
And he does this to fulfill a prophecy that we see in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. These are words that are pulled from the Old Testament from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it's interesting because the way that, that Jesus takes this, the way John records it, is actually a little bit different than the way Zechariah records it. At the beginning, he uses different words. He uses the words, fear not. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't imagine humility and gentleness driving out fear, right? I imagine power driving out fear. I imagine strength driving out fear. I imagine like a big muscle-bound warrior driving out fear. I don't imagine humility and gentleness driving out fear. So, So how does it do this? Because love, this willing to sacrifice everything, requires humility and gentleness. Giving away everything for the sake of another person requires humility and gentleness, and that's exactly what Jesus is heading to do. Jesus is heading into the city of Jerusalem, and he is about to give everything for God's glory and for our good. Everything for our sake. And Jesus shows this humility and this gentleness, entering in as the type of king who's not first heading for a throne, but who's heading for a cross. Esau Macaulay says that Jesus picked a symbol that emphasized humility and lowliness instead of military strength. Jesus chose the way of humility and lowliness, and for us to embrace the kingdom, we also have to choose the way of humility and gentleness. We're called by Jesus every day to pick up what? Not our palm branches, but to pick up our cross and follow him daily. Not the symbols of power, but the symbol of humility. And the idea for you and I is to say this, Jesus, you are the one who holds all glory and power. I don't. You hold all glory and power, and I have none. And so I need to choose the way that you chose that reflects the kingdom, and that's the way that the kingdom advances, that when I choose to be the least, I'm actually the greatest in the kingdom of God. That when I choose to serve, that I'm like my Lord and Savior, and what God says is that actually leads to life. I need to choose this way. What could God do through you if you chose the way of humility and dependency in the kingdom? The way of gentleness in the kingdom. What would God do through city on a hill if we were to choose this way to say, God, I put your glory and your honor and your praise above our reputation, above everything else for your sake. I'm going to serve others because because of the way you served us. Secondly, we look at who Jesus' kingdom is made for. Now, firstly, it's for those who receive Jesus as the right kind of king. Now, there's some really comforting words in verse 16. They help me out a lot. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Man, that is such good news, right? That these guys who followed Jesus, followed God for three years, don't quite get it yet. So if you feel like, man, I'm just a little slow on the uptake and the stuff, and I'm struggling, and I'm not the most theological, and you know, I get confused a lot. You are in the right place. Uh, I, I promise you. Because those who are willing to humble themselves and receive Jesus as the right kind of king, God will reveal himself to. They didn't understand. They didn't quite get it. And the disciples, they didn't get it until after Jesus died and rose again, until Jesus was glorified. And it's almost like they went, oh, now I get it. Oh, now I see what all that's about. Now I see what Jesus was trying to get at. The light bulb goes off, and in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, we see how the light bulb goes off. 
Jesus said that one day a helper is coming who will reveal to you all things. The helper who's going to point you to me over and over again, and that's the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is it helps you see the type of king that Jesus is, the true king. And until you understand who Jesus truly is by the power of the Spirit, you're going to be tempted to think of Jesus only as a good teacher. He's just somebody who has some really good morals, and he's a good example of how I should live. He's really humble. He, you know, he, he, you know, he was practically homeless. He lived this really good life. I could, I could live a life like that. Until you have the Spirit reveal to you who Jesus truly is as King, you'll see him as that social change agent. You'll see him as a buddy who's there for you when things are hard, but one you don't actually submit to. Or you'll see him as an accessory to your life, not as the King of your life. But what the Spirit does is opens your eyes and opens your heart to see Jesus rightly. And when you see Jesus, you see how good he is. You see how worthy he is. And you look at him and say, I want him to be my king. That there's nothing better. There's no other path that I could follow that would lead me to life. And what happens is you change allegiances and you change kingdoms when you see that Jesus is that kind of king. There's a place in the Bible where it says that you've been transferred from the the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and every single person on the planet is in one kingdom or the other. There's something that you're giving yourself to, to order your life and to help you figure out the world, and what Jesus is saying is that his kingdom is better. So it's for those who receive Jesus rightly as king, but secondly, it's for those who long for good news. Man, we need good news, right? Like, we, we live in a world that is hard. We live in a city that's tough, and there are performance reviews, and you've got to ride the orange line. And, like, it's just a hard world to live in sometimes. And we just need good news. Like, we need positive news. At the beginning of the pandemic, about two weeks in, John Krasinski, you know, Jim from The Office, started something called Some Good News. It was a YouTube channel all filled with good news. No bad news at all. And it came at the darkest time. It came at that moment where, like, man, I could just really use some good news. Good news always comes at the darkest moments. And we see the crowd in chapter seven, in verse 17 who are recognizing that because they just came from the scene at Bethany with Lazarus where Jesus came through in the darkest moment. They're at a funeral. They're, they're remembering their friend and they're thinking, I'm never going to hear him laugh again. I'm never going to hear his stories again. I'm never going to get to spend time with him again. They're at the lowest moment possible. And here Jesus comes and brings good news to a dark situation. He brought the dead to life. And they look at that moment. They look at the good news that's come. People longing for good news. And they're thinking, if he can do that, if he can bring the dead to life, then man, what is it that he can't do? What could he do for me? And that's what happens when you hear the gospel. The Bible says that faith comes through hearing the word of God. And when you hear what Jesus did on the cross, that Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin, that he died a sinner's death, that he rose again to new life, and you hear that, you have to make it your own. You have to realize Jesus did that for me. That Jesus did that for you. That he came to you in your darkest moment with good news. And those who understand they need good news receive that with gladness. The kingdom of God brings such life-altering good news that you have to be willing to say, I'll give up everything for it. 
There are two stories in the book of Matthew where it says that a man found a hidden treasure in a field and went and sold everything that he had to find that treasure. Another where there was a a pearl of great price and he went and sold everything he had because what he could buy with everything that he would give away was worth it. The good news of the gospel is that no matter what we give away, Jesus returns to us so much better through his life, death, and resurrection. We have good news of a king who came to take away your guilt by paying for it to take away your shame by bearing it, to take away your fear by overcoming it. Now lastly, let's look at how the kingdom moves you. The kingdom of God moves us. Verse 19 is such a compelling verse. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. They're looking at the crowd. They're looking at all these people swarming around Jesus. And they're like, man, we have lost. The momentum is swelling. It's It's over. We can't stop what's coming. They had wanted to kill Jesus. They couldn't even get close to Jesus. We will gain nothing. And they say the whole world has gone after him. They were ready to tell this good news. The end of verse 17, it talks about those who uh, saw Lazarus raised from the dead and continued to bear witness. They had saw the good news and they told others about it. The gospel calls those who enter into God's kingdom to extend it by telling other people about it. We're called to extend the kingdom of God as we come into the kingdom of God. And so where the kingdom moves you, first of all, is it moves you toward what's broken. D.A. Carson says that Jesus' kingdom in this text was associated with three things, the cessation of war, the proclamation of peace, and the release of prisoners. The coming of the Messiah was this this picture of a day when there would be no more suffering, there would be no more pain, there would be no more war, that peace would truly come, and those who needed grace the most could find it. And so what we are called to do as people in the kingdom of God is to run where the kingdom of God is not noticeable. The world should be different because of the church. The city of Boston should be different because of the kingdom And we, as the church, have been called to love our city relentlessly. And what this means is that the city of Boston, because the church is here, there should be less violence. There should be less poverty. There should be less inequality. There should be less inequality. There should be less injustice. So we run to those things. And as the church, we try to give tangible ways, like serving in English high school and like what we're doing with the Higher Education Resource Center, foster care and adoption. Those are all ways we tangibly run towards what's broken how the gospel compels us to love our neighbor. But secondly, we're called to run toward those who are lost and hurting. When we're talking about Jesus being the king or not being your king, we're talking about people's destiny. We're talking about eternal destiny before a holy God. Those who do not know Jesus will not enter into his rest. And there's an invitation that we're called to give to others who do not know Christ, that we would tell them that there is a place that you can come home that you can find life in what Jesus has done for you. And there's a call to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross to pay for your sins. And this morning, if you've not received Jesus as your Savior, I would love to walk through how to do that. I'm going to be standing in the back right after the service or in the sermon after we're doing communion. I'm going to be standing back there. If you would like to give your life to Jesus today, if you'd like to receive Christ, I'd love to pray with you and talk about how to do that today.